This is Inside the Writer's Head with Jessica Strasser, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2019 Writer in Residence. The Library Foundation's Writer in Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Here now is Jessica Strasser. Hi, everyone. This is your writer in residence, Jessica Strasser, and I am so excited to have with us today D.M. Pooley. Dee lives just outside of Cleveland with her family. Uh, Before becoming a full-time writer, she worked as a professional engineer, rehabbing historic structures and conducting forensic investigations of building failures. In fact, it was a structural survey of a vacant building in Cleveland that inspired her debut novel, The Dead Key, which was the grand prize winner of the 2014 Amazon Breakthrough Novel Award, which I will just interject here to say was a huge deal. (laughs) Huge deal, Dee. The book, a dark, haunting thriller, went on to be published by Amazon's Thomas and Mercer imprint in 2015. And to date, it has a staggering 10,000 plus reviews on the site with over a four-star average, which is amazing. She has since published three other standalone novels in a similar vein, The Buried Book, The Unclaimed Victim, and Now No One's Home, which will be new September 1st. Basically, if you like to be creeped out by abandoned buildings or old homes with a mysterious past, these are the novels for you. And Dee is the author for you because not only does she dream up these great stories about them, but she knows a lot about them in real life. In fact, if you follow her on social media, she shares a lot of stuff that catches her eye, um, which makes her one of my favorite people to follow. Um, she's on Facebook and Twitter at DM Pulley Author and on Instagram at d.m.pulley. And fortunately for us, we have her in the flesh today. Dee, welcome to Inside the Writer's Head. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for making the time to do this. I'm so excited to talk with you about this new book. I'm excited to tell you about it. I'm, I'm loving this story. I'm really excited for it to get out into the world. So before we talk about the new one, I do want to back up just a little bit. I mean, it's been... It's been five years since you won the Amazon Breakthrough Novel Award. Um, So I imagine you're pretty sick of being asked about that by now. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually. But, okay, good, because we have we have very many aspiring writers who listen to this podcast, given that it's part of the Cincinnati Library's Writer-in-Residence program. So I think I'd be remiss not to at least briefly start the interview by talking about how you got your start. So... The award, um, for those who aren't familiar, does not exist anymore, unfortunately. No, I feel like I broke it. <laughs> I know. You did. You were you were the last one to win it, right? I was the last one. I feel very bad for all the ABNA entries. Well, from 2008 through 2015, it was this big pie-in-the-sky opportunity for unpublished writers. I remember considering entering it myself at one point. Um Can you give us the inside scoop for those who aren't familiar and even for those who are on what the experience of entering and winning such a high profile contest was like? Oh, it was wild. I mean, I feel so lucky. It's like winning the lottery and getting struck by lightning on the same day. Um, I knew nothing about the Amazon Breakthrough Novel Award uh, right before I entered. Um, I'd actually been online looking for short story contests. I, as a struggling writer with a big book I was trying to sell, 
to agents that were not writing me back. I had just finished reading Stephen King's book on writing, which I highly recommend to all the struggling and aspiring writers out there. It's an amazing tale of how he got published and what his writing habits are like. And it really made me feel less alone as I was sort of feeling my way through figuring out how to be a writer. Um, I've learned so much. Was The Dead Key the first full-length novel that you'd ever attempted? Yes. The Dead Key was my first full-length work. I had been cooking it in my head for over 10 years. Um, The building that inspired the story I actually worked on back in 2000 and 2001. And I I really didn't sit down to write the book in earnest. I had tried NaNoWriMo a couple times, National Novel Writing Month. And um, Chris Beatty's book, by the way, No Plot, No Problem, was also a big help to me as I was figuring my way through my first novel. Um, but I, I had lots of false starts. And I, until I got that guidebook through NaNoWriMo, I really didn't know how to climb a mountain that is writing a book. I mean, it just you have to make your little goals every day. And it was a process that I knew nothing about when I started. And when... Um, I finally finished the book. I had sent it out to agents and I heard nothing back but crickets because it was over 600 pages long and I had no sense of the marketing side of the business. I had no sense of even what kind of book I had written. Like I I had to take a quiz online about, is this a mystery? I don't know if it's women's fiction because I had a female protagonist. Is it historical fiction? Because I did go back and forth in time. And so I was really lost in the woods. And after reading Stephen King's um, tome on writing, I was like, you know, I should start smaller. What am I doing trying to sell a 600-page novel when I don't even have a writer's resume? So I was online. I'd written a few short stories, and I was looking for contests and ways to get my voice out there and to build slowly uh, a little bit of an audience. And the Amazon Breakthrough Novel Award came up in my Google search engine, and it struck me right away because the word count limit was 125,000 words. And at the time, I think I had a fourth or fifth draft with the dead key and I was over 150,000. But I knew after attending VoucherCon and some writers conferences that 125,000 words is pretty good for a first novel. I'm like, that's probably the most number of words I'll ever get for the dead key. So I found out about it three weeks before the deadline. I cut 30,000 words. That's 100 pages out of my manuscript. And um, which was great. It was great to have a really tight deadline and a set number of words to cut. I was ruthless. I, you know, I had enough distance from the draft that I didn't I didn't really falter about killing my darlings. I was able to just go in ruthlessly and take out all those words. And um, and I submitted it. And then I kind of spent the next eight months in the Abna uh, community, like the people that had entered the contest over the years, they all knew each other. There were chat rooms where people were discussing, you know, what the contest was going to be like this year. Every year, Amazon kind of changed the parameters in 2014. I think there were five winners in five different categories. And when they had started the contest in 2007 or eight, it was maybe just one or two. So Amazon publishing has changed drastically since the contest began and the contest was always evolving. So there was just a group of friends online. I was a lurker and I was just kind of in the chat rooms here, like reading what people had to say. And I never really expected to make it very far. I was really hoping to make it to the semifinals so that the, the out of 10,000 books that were entered that year, um, the top 100 books were supposed to get a real review by a professional, like Publishers Weekly staff was gonna give you like a critique. 
And that's all I wanted. I just wanted to get um, a professional's opinion on this crazy book I had written. And um, so every time there was a cut, you know, you're biting your fingernails and you're sweating it out and you're, you know, praying to the book gods that maybe you'll make it to the next round. And um, I was just absolutely, I mean, I was shocked, speechless when I actually ended up winning. It was um, really unexpected. Was publication with Thomas and Mercer part of the actual prize or did it just lead to that? The prize itself, yes, was a publishing contract. So it was the grand prize. It was published. So I can tell everybody because you can go and look it up. Um, it's still probably online somewhere. Um, it was a $50,000 advance and a publishing deal with Thomas with the imprint that won. So in 2014, Amazon had multiple imprints. Um, Lake Union handled family fiction. Um, 21 North, I think, is their... Um, horror and sci-fi fantasy division. And Thomas and Mercer was the mystery thriller division. And there were five finalists and all five finalists in the contest in 2014 got a publishing deal um, it was of a smaller advance, but they got a publishing deal with each imprint that sponsored. And then because I won the grand prize, Thomas and Mercer was the, the winning um, imprint also. And um, I got a contract with them. So it was um, all of a sudden, no agent and no experience having a, an advance and a editor and just being kind of thrown into the deep end. It was really an experience. Yeah. Well, and you're still publishing with them. All of your subsequent books have been with Thomas and Mercer, correct? All but one. The Buried Book, they switched me over to Lake Union um, I because it was more of a family drama. Although at its heart, it's still a historical mystery. And I think there's still some debate inside the publishing house about whether or not I should have just stayed with Thomas or Mercer. But yes, I'd say that as a whole, that's my home right now. I think there's a lot of confusion out there in the writing community about what publishing with Amazon actually means, because some people think that means self-publishing, which is not true. Um, the confusion comes, I think, because certainly you can self-publish through Amazon services. They have a number of services that allow that, where you make your books available on Amazon. But um, as you were saying, what we're talking about, just to clarify, this is Amazon publishing. Amazon has its own publishing arm with these imprints that operate a lot like traditional publishers. You know, they've got editorial teams, acquisitions boards, everything that comes with that. And um there have been some big name best-selling authors who've actually left their New York City publishers to publish um, directly with Amazon. Robert Dugoni is the one who comes immediately to mind. I think he's with your imprint as well. With yes, Robert. Yeah, Bob Dugoni is with um, Thomas and Mercer. Patricia Cornwell signed um, a multiple book deal um, a couple months back, and just recently, this past month, Dean Koontz has signed a five book deal with Amazon publishing. Oh, really? Yeah. Relatively new. Oh, wow. I didn't hear that. Um, that's a big coup for them. Um, well, when newer writers are exploring their publishing options, what should they know? Um, if you're willing to speak candidly about the pros and cons of Amazon publishing, as opposed to a New York publisher. Well, I mean, it's I, it's weird coming into this business um, from being such an outsider. I, you know, I'm, I'm always learning more about other publishing houses. I've never been published by a big five or traditional publisher. I do now have friends, 
I'm happy to say you're one of them, Jessica, who um, have published with other publishing houses. And I'm always curious to hear what the experiences are like. Um, Amazon is constantly changing, and I don't think that's unique to Amazon. Um, The publishing business as a whole, I'm sure we could all agree, has been through a lot of changes in the last 10 years. Um, But even year to year, Amazon is shuffling personnel. It's changing um, its focuses. It's... um, broadening some of its reach. It's, they're, they're constantly rejiggering their, their strategy. And so as an Amazon author, it's just a shifting landscape. You have to realize that sales goals, you know, that used to be there, maybe they're a little different now because the, the whole strategy has shifted. Um, I, overall, authors are very happy with Amazon. Um, Amazon's got a great distribution network. It's, um, I've reached so many more readers. Oh my gosh. I mean, it seems like from the outside as someone who's not doing it, um, but I have a lot of author friends who are with, um, I actually have a lot who are with Lake Union, um, it seems like. And I know a few um, like you who are with Thomas and Mercer, but seems like at least from the outside that the marketing and the discoverability on Amazon is second to none. I mean, some people would say, well, it's a little bit of a conflict of interest if they can be biased toward publishing their own titles. But I mean, whether it is or it isn't, if you're an Amazon author, I'm assuming you're benefiting from a certain amount of push there, which is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I yes, they and their their marketing strategies um, have been shifting. I mean, I think that the big five other publishers are getting much more savvy in the digital era and just five years. There's the competition coming from the more traditional outlets on Amazon's site is much more tight and fierce. Like there is, there might've been, uh, I guess, more of a captive audience, especially with Kindle users for certain Amazon titles that were produced through Amazon. But my understanding is that they've opened up that platform wide open to all the publishing houses Um, so, so yes, I mean, the short answer is yes, they've got a lot of great data on the reading population. They've got a lot of great access to shoppers. Um, it's the biggest marketplace for books. And, um, I feel very lucky to have this pub, this huge publisher and sales giant, like working on my behalf. Um, I will say that, uh, they are not so biased that my, like my editors have to submit for ads and petition, for marketing space on Amazon site, just like any other publisher, they um, they're really trying to keep it a living, a level playing field. And um, so it's the challenges that all authors face in finding an audience, reaching that audience, um, constantly interacting and, and just trying to keep uh, your books in front of readers. It's, it's a, it's a constant job um, even with Amazon doing that push. And I'd say above all of that, there's still a certain like alchemy that goes into a successful book that is somewhat unpredictable. Uh, A friend of mine here in Cleveland used to work with Penguin and she was in their marketing department and she was explaining to me that even with all the best marketing and all the best push and and all the greatest publicity and everything that you could want for a book, you can't guarantee a hit and you can't, nobody knows for sure which titles are going to be the ones that really capture an audience. And um, even with all of the data that is available now and all the things that Amazon can do, um, there's still that sort of intangible magic to what really ends up capturing uh, a big audience. I know. Darn it. (laughs) (laughs) 
if it was just like a recipe that you could follow. I know, right? Well, the other thing before we move on from this, the other thing people talk about um, with and rightly with Amazon is that they are much less pre- uh, resistant to pricing their ebooks very low. Um, traditional publishers um, are really resistant to lowering the prices of their ebooks, and um, I, I mean, I mean, Amazon's ebooks are, tend to be very inexpensive. Um, which I do think can help, you know, I don't know how much analysis has been done on stuff like profit margins, if you're making less per copy, but I think there's an inherent opportunity in that as well to reach more readers, especially if you are a newer author or not as much of a household name, because it's like, well, this book is only $4.99. It's pretty low risk to take a chance on it. Yeah, I think that that is, um, I mean, God, a couple years ago when Amazon was having that big scuffle with Hatchet and like there was all, of, you know, arguing over pricing. Um, I, my book had just come out. I think my second book was out. And my experience has been, and this is for maybe the audience out there listening that is self-publishing or considering self-publishing. Um, there is a benefit. There is a sweet spot in pricing. And Generally, whenever my books would go on sale, even though I was making less money per unit, um, you climb the charts because of traffic. And as those, it's a kind of a, a perpetuating loop. Like if you can get higher up in people's searches because you're higher up in the charts because your price is a little bit lower, you're exposed to so many more readers. And my, I always made more money um, on in weeks that I was on sale. And even though the price per unit was low, the exposure was so high that it did make a difference. And it hasn't been the case every single time. And I think that um, it was certainly truer for some of my earlier titles. And I think that, you know, I think, again, I think that some of the more traditional publishers have gotten wise to this uh, phenomenon. And I feel like the competition right now, even when you're on sale, is a lot tougher than it was even just three years ago. Yeah, they have opportunities like uh, Kindle Daily Deals, um, right. which, yeah, I had benef- one of my titles, um, not that I could tell, benefited from being a Kindle Daily Deal last summer. And that was pretty amazing to hit number one, you know, I hit number one in a few categories. And from that day on, you can call yourself a number one bestseller, right. Amazon bestseller too, which is like, well, it was only for... <laughs> a day, but now I can (laughs) call myself that. But yeah, I mean, just the exposure of um, getting on that chart, even after I saw it myself, where even after the sale price went away, the book had lingered there for a while, just because people were seeing it. Yeah, I think that right now, the challenge for every writer out there is, especially since the marketplace is more online now, is that you're not just competing in the bookstore with the top titles of your particular month or your particular season. Like right now, you're competing with every book ever published um, and being sold on Amazon. Like right now, Beloved is in the top 20 um, on Amazon's site, even though it was published many, many years ago. And so to get eyeballs on your book, it's, it's very competitive to even get noticed just because there's so much out there. And... Uh, yeah, so it's a little different than back in the old days when, you know, the bookstore would have its backlist of, you know, standard titles, but then there was, you know, the bestsellers and the newer books and, and your competition was more head to head with people that had just published as opposed to now where it's you're competing with Mark Twain and Toni Morrison and you're competing with 
ready in the marketplace. Speaking of the old days, to quickly dispel a myth here, um, or maybe not dispel it, is it harder to get your books carried in independent bookstores and libraries if you're published by Amazon? You know, I think that there, I think that's changing. It certainly was the case with the Dead Key. Um, my independent bookstores here in the Cleveland area have always been super supportive of my career, and I owe so much to Max Bax and Loganberry Books and um I'm a big fan of independent bookstores. Uh, but, you know, the, the one thing that's tricky about Amazon as an author is that they've kind of subverted a lot of the standard mechanisms of getting to readers. Um, they don't value traditional print reviews as much as online reader reviews, for example. So it is harder sometimes, not for everyone, but for some authors to get noticed in things like Publishers Weekly. Um, or library journal. And uh, right now, you know, the reader review is everything for Amazon. So because they haven't had to, um, they've sort of bucked the trend in publishing in so many ways that um, there are certain outlets where some independent bookstores feel a lot of competition coming from the Amazon marketplace because the pricing is so low. And, um, but what I've loved seeing is that, and certainly for Barnes and Noble. I mean, Amazon's doing to the big chain bookstores what the big chain bookstores did to independent bookstores 20 years ago. And what's been wonderful to see is these independent bookstores are coming back. Um, they're flourishing. They're doing really well. They're finding niche places in their communities where people want to gather and hear authors speak and they want to thumb through books and actually wander the stacks. And um, it's just interesting. I feel like it's, it's just a shifting landscape. But um, so the long answer, the short answer is it depends. I think that um, my local libraries and bookstores have been super supportive. If you're if you're a listener, you know, in Tucson, Arizona, there's a chance that my books will not be in your library, but you'll be able to find them online. And I've been to our um biggest independent here in Cincinnati to Joseph Beth Booksellers. I've been to events there for Amazon authors. So I know that that is true as well, that if they want, if they have the reason um, and the demand to stock a book, they definitely will. So with that said, let us talk about your new book, um, No One's Home. And I really appreciate you being so receptive to these questions too, because from a publishing standpoint, um, you know, none of us really like having to think too much about that kind of stuff, but we do. And as you said, it's changing so rapidly that sometimes the only way to know is to ask someone who's doing it. So thank you. Yeah, I mean, like, no problem. I mean, the one thing I would say is that my experiences have been very positive. But, um, you know, I think that you have to realize when you're an author, no matter how you're published, you ultimately are in business for yourself. And you have to manage your platform, you have to manage your, um, your own publicity, you have to, there, there's a certain amount of um, the business side that's on your shoulders, I think, regardless of, of who's publishing you at the time, because it is, a shifting landscape and things change, you know, month to month, even. You have to be savvy about it. No one is going to look out for your career the way that you are. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I've got advocates. I've got an agent. I mean, I've, I've, I love my editors. I mean, like everything has been wonderful, but you know, it's, um, it is a sales driven business. So you have to keep that in mind, I think. So the story of how you got the idea for The Dead Key is pretty well known, but your new book is No One's Home. Uh, where did the idea for this one come from? 
Well, I live in Shaker Heights, Ohio, and I live in a hundred-year-old house. And in addition to that, for several years, I was a designer for um, old house renovations. Um, I did uh, several friends and some clients. I did kitchens and bathrooms. I added dormers, a lot of HGTV fun stuff, you know, in these old houses and trying to find ways to modernize them. And um, one of the largest projects I got involved with was a multi-million dollar mansion in Cleveland Heights. And that house was over 7,000 square feet. And I remember wandering through it thinking um, you could get lost in there. And that was sort of a seed of an idea. Um, another seed of an idea was an old shoe that I found in a house in Lakewood that looked to have been there since the 1920s. We were tearing up the attic and putting in a dormer and this leather little boy's shoe was stuck in the wall along with a ball, a wooden ball that uh, the boy had probably played with. And that was another little seed of an idea. Um, my house in Shaker, the closet in one of my son's bedrooms has a bunch of messages that had been written by previous owners going back to the 1970s. And just like little notes, like so-and-so is here or enjoy this house or little bits of gossip. And the wall is covered in this closet and nobody has painted over it, even though the house has changed hands a few times. And we certainly aren't painting over it. Um, That was another little seed of an idea. And I've always, since the time I was a little girl, been obsessed with buildings and houses in particular. And the idea of the stories that are sort of locked in a house over the years, Um, little artifacts, little bits and pieces that get left behind by the families that used to live there, um, like the writing in the closet or the shoe stuck in the wall. Um, Just the idea that there is a life to a house uh, beyond the people, that that there's sort of like um, an echo of all the different families. And there's, there's kind of a history there that you can almost feel and touch. And I've always felt that way. And that's what I mean when I say a building can feel haunted. It's not that I'm thinking of Casper the ghost, but I'm thinking more of the idea that there is a memory um, in some of these rooms that I've been in. Um, So I had this kind of seed of an idea that I wanted to write about one of these really old majestic manors um, in Shaker Heights. And Shaker has a very interesting history um, going back to the 1800s when um, a society of believers settled here on um, Mr. Russell's land and they formed this commune called, you know, the Shaking Quakers. They were um, this ascetic society. They believed Jesus was coming back. They, They eschewed like personal ownership of property. They didn't get married. They didn't birth children. They were taking in orphans and... Um, they were very active in this area. Over 200 uh, members of the Society of Believers lived on the land here um, up until the after the Civil War. And they eventually sold it off in the 1880s and, and eventually was developed into what's known now known as Shaker Heights. But that kind of history interested me. Also, the idea that you can find in different parts of Shaker Heights, there's like, for instance, a graveyard hidden next to the Heinens on Lee Road where... A lot of the bodies of these shakers, these um, this commune, were exhumed and moved there when they were building some of the mansions on South Park. And you can wander the graveyard and like, just make out some of the names on the stones. And the idea of living amidst history has always interested me. 
And so I just began digging like I always do. Um, when I have an idea or concept that interests me, I start going through all the newspaper archives looking for usually murders or some sort of interesting crime, missing gold, um, anything about the Underground Railroad. Like I was just kind of putting out feelers all over the place. And I stumbled onto um, a very unfortunate case of murder in the 1930s, um, actually 1931. And it was a very sad, tragic case of a, of a child of, a, of infanticide, a six-year-old boy um, being murdered. And it caught my attention because it was gruesome. It was um, improbable. I didn't quite, I often look at newspaper stories and I wonder what the real story is. You know, you get the official story and what the police file and, but I want to know more. So I started to research the family that was involved and found out that the father died of mysterious causes right after Black Tuesday in 1929 when the stock market crashed. And um, so just, I start to put out these feelers and get these ideas and this idea of multiple families with different sort of intrigues and dramas and tragedies all convening inside this one house uh, really started to inspire me. So I started writing little vignettes. I wrote in multiple files. I think I had five different documents where I was writing in one time period and then I would go and I would write about a different family in a different time period. And, um, it became a puzzle and I knew that there was a way to bring the story together and, uh, and, and make it play off of the present day. Um, there was a house I toured in 2008 when we were house haunting here in, um, in Shaker. And it was such a tragic story. I go into this house, beautiful house, like a 4,000 square foot, just gorgeous Tudor. And it had been trashed. It was covered in graffiti. All the copper had been stripped out. Um, the radiators were gone. There was a giant, scary blood stain on one of the floors of the second floor bedrooms. And um, there was a college acceptance letter that had never been opened, just sort of sitting on the attic steps. And going through the open house, I was hearing stories about what had happened there. You know, supposedly the husband had died and the mother went insane and the daughter was on drugs. And presumably the daughter was the one that got into college. And, um, so that's, that house became a big part of the story, too. So I wanted to tell a story about buying that house. I didn't have the guts to buy the house myself. It needed a lot of work. And I was, you know, I knew my marriage couldn't take a $100,000 renovation. I'm like, oh, my God. It really, we would have gotten divorced. But it was, it was so much potential and beauty in this house. And I was like, wouldn't it be fun to have actually bought the house and then discover what the real story was behind all this tragedy. And so the Spielmans, my family in no one's home is a present day family. And they're moving to Cleveland from Boston under sort of mysterious circumstances. And um, the house is being sold at a big discount because it's been vandalized and it's had all its plumbing ripped out and it's covered in graffiti and teenagers have been partying there. And um, so they buy the house with cash and uh, because I've, I actually had co-workers that moved from Boston and you wouldn't believe um, how much more affordable housing is in Cleveland. They were able to pay cash. So I'm like, you know, their house in Boston was probably close to a million dollars and they were able to buy a 5,000 square foot home for 150,000. So they buy this house with cash and they know they need to put work into it and they proceed to renovate it into a dream house. But then in the process it kind of becomes a nightmare house as they unravel some of this terrible history and they realize that they may not be alone in the house. 
And the book then kind of jumps back in time and we see the back and forth. We see these flashes of the other people um, who have lived in the house and how their stories are interwoven and kind of the little mystery. There's sort of a mystery that corresponds really to each time period. Um, But then they all sort of tie together. The book is it's so atmospheric. You did such a wonderful job with I, – I love the idea of, you know, the house is really like a central – it's almost like a character in the novel. Yeah, actually, um, I'm telling the story from the house's point of view. Yeah. Um, the house is not self-aware. It would never, you know, be like, I'm a house. <laughs> but um, I, I've always told my stories from a deep point of view. Um, from a From a writing standpoint, it was easier for me to get into the story if I could only – know the thoughts of one character and only see what one character could see. And that's been great for me as far as building suspense and keeping certain information from the reader and from the protagonist. And it's, I find that format works really well um, for mysteries and thrillers. But in this case, I wanted to be able to see inside all the bedrooms at once. And I wanted to be able to see so many different people. I decided that my deep point of view had to be, I had to anchor it somehow or else I knew I would get lost. And so the house itself became my character point of view. And it's just, it's, it's killing me hearing you talk about um, all the little bits of real life inspiration that that went into this story because the house in this book is so tragic (laughs) a couple of the deaths that that have taken place there over the years were so sad and I was going to ask you you know if you went back and forth with deciding how much history the house really should have and how you decided if there was anything to dial up or amp up. And then talking to you now, it seems like the, the parts that really got to me are the parts that were real, that you took from real life, which is, oh, it's so sad. Yeah, you know, it's crazy. I've been finding that um, I'm actually writing an article about this now um, of taking real life and, and turning parts of it into fiction. Um, my One of the things I like to do is to find a real murder and, you know, get the official story from the newspapers about it, especially like ones that happened in the past. And I'm, I'm reading about this murder in 1931 and I didn't, I didn't like the official story at all. And I almost didn't believe it because this is the six year old. This is, yeah, this is the story um, in the book. It's um, Walter Rawlings Jr. And um, in real life, the actual victim, and I'm not, I'm not giving out the name. I almost, in the notes, I was going to give um, details on the two real murders that inspired the story, but I decided it was just, especially since one of the murders happened more recently in the 1990s, um, I decided for the privacy of the families and, it's, and these, the house where this actual real murder occurred is still occupied. Like there are people living there now. That um, and that and their house is not Rawlingswood. I mean, I really made Rawlingswood a, a composite of many houses. Um, but I figured these people are living a happy life. They don't need to know <laughs> the details <laughs> that there was a murder in their house back in 1931. So, um, out of respect, I'm not I'm not giving out too many details. But the um, but this case, I had a really hard time believing that um, a mother would. I've read many cases of of mothers killing their children during the Great Depression because they were 
destitute. They were going to lose their house. They would maybe be starving to death. And the few cases I did read about in Cleveland, it typically involved a painless and, and humane death, like turning on the gas and just, you know, everyone went to sleep in the kitchen together, that kind of thing. Whereas this case did not fit um, what I what I would believe possible. So I, I wanted to consider the possibility that there might have been more to the story. And so I investigated a lot of surrounding um, news and a lot of the family's history. And just and one of the things that stuck that struck me is, um, you know, Cleveland had a very active and loose network of um, distilleries during prohibition when this particular murder happened. And organized crime was very active in Cleveland in the 20s and 30s and um, gosh, up until the late 70s, really. And the idea that there could have been, I mean, we have a vulnerable household where the father has passed. Um, there were lots of opportunities for other factors to be involved. And so, yes, unfortunately, there is some real tragedy in, involved in the story. Um, but I like to think that it kind of, there's some hopeful things at the end that kind of, um, I guess, doesn't leave everyone feeling terrible you know, about, about what went, what, what happened. Yes. We don't want to burn the house down at the end. No, I'm happy for the house. house gets redeemed in the end, which makes exactly. sense. <laughs> and, um, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I like to think of all my stories as little Cleveland microcosm stories. Uh, there's a lot of tragedy in, in history and a lot of crime, obviously. And as a crime writer, it's, it's hard if you're going to write about crime it's going to be heartbreaking, or at least in my opinion, it should be heartbreaking in some fashion, because it, for me, murder is not just a mystery to be solved. It's, um, it's a tragedy to heal from as well. I mean, it's, it's, it affects a whole community. And I am most drawn to the stories that deal with that aspect of it, not just solving the mystery. And I do think there really is something about, you know, a place taking on the aura of, um, or whatever you want to call it, of the the things that have happened there. And you tied it together in this book and in such a beautiful way and making the book, not just the setting, but kind of the, our narrator almost through the story. And um, yeah, I think, gosh, if you like it, so it's a, it's a thriller, but it's, it's a little bit historical fiction too. Um and it's got a really haunting atmosphere to it. Um, and so if you like any of those things and supporting Ohio authors, I think you will love this book. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> we're, we're, I'm being told we, we try to focus. It's also a family drama. Um, and in kind of in your area of that's growing in popularity everywhere is this idea of domestic suspense where Yes, families with secrets. Families with secrets is, um, yeah, that's one of my favorite topics because I want to hear all the secrets. I want to be hiding in the closets and listening and finding out what everyone's hiding. Yes, exactly. And I think, and I don't, I, I mean, this this book has so many moving parts. I've seen your pictures on Facebook of how you're, you've been structuring your novels with like a wall of index cards. Yeah. Uh, what's going on up there? What? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've been finding so my last couple books, um, starting with The Unclaimed Victim. The Unclaimed Victim was a complicated story. It went back and forth in time, much like The Dead Key. And I found that for pacing, especially, it's one of the things I've been trying to get better at is um, 
pacing out and and balancing the tone and getting the ending to feel fulfilling, like all of these things. I knew I wanted to see the story. And so for the unclaimed victim, I started doing this where I, after I finished a draft, I would print out little synopsis of every chapter and make them on index cards and then put them up on my door where I could see it all at once. I mean, a computer screen, you just can't see it all at once and read it at the same time. So I wanted to see the whole story at once to make sure that I could see the plot. I tried lots of different techniques. And I tried graphing, I tried, you know, doing timelines, I I tried lots of things to be able to see the story and how it was arcing and how it was, especially since I tend to have multiple storylines, making sure that the the, all the storylines are are melding together and weaving together well. And this technique just ended up working out best for me. And this particular book, No One's Home, it was especially critical because I was writing the story in five different files. And I was not writing it in order, um, as I have in the past with other books. I was sticking with a time period for a while and then, you know, jumping around to somewhere else. And um, so getting it all pieced together, it was like a book puzzle. I had to put it all out there and, and see what was missing. And that's kind of how I go from a first draft to a third or fourth draft is, once you once I can see it, I realize, okay, I'm missing a few beats. Like I know I need a few scenes to make this transition better. I knew I know I need to explain where this character's going. In no one's home, we ended up um, dropping several chapters um, set in the 1840s because it was just a little too much to keep track of. And um, so that's just an example of how seeing it all at once helped you know, get it kind of organized. It's cool. I really love the way you, I'm always fascinated by other authors' processes, but I love the way that you share yours on social media. And as I said at the beginning, when I was introducing you, also just how you sort of share your inspiration and all these things that tie into the things that you write about. It's it's really cool. Thank you. I love seeing you on social media. Um, is there anything else um, people should know about uh, you, where they can find you online or in real life here in Ohio and what you're writing next? Well, um, they can subscribe to my newsletter. I've been giving inside scoop on book five, which I just submitted to my agent. Um, I'm really excited about this one. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's multiple storylines like no one's home, but it's, um, it's, it, co- it covers a murder in 1968 and the ripple effects of that act of violence through three generations and just sort of follows this unlikely cast of characters living in Cleveland um, and trying to live through this, this tragic murder. Um, so if they want, if you're, if anyone out there would like to know more about what I'm working on or follow me, if you subscribe to my newsletter, if you go to www dmpulley.com. There's a button at top to subscribe. You'll get um, the first chapter of No One's Home sent to your inbox, and you will also get all the inside information on what I'm working on. I only put out a newsletter once a month because I don't like, you know, getting too much email myself. So I try to just let people know the highlights. And like, for instance, this month, my newsletter just came out and um I have a good, I have a good, good reads giveaway going on. That's a lot of G's. Good reads giveaway. A <laughs> hundred copies of No One's Home being given away um, for Kindle 
by my publisher. Um, if you go to Goodreads, you can enter. And actually, I've posted about it just today on my Facebook feed. So if you're interested in entering to win a free copy, uh, you can certainly do that. Well, as soon as I hang up with you, I'm going to go subscribe to your newsletter. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for making the time to do this. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been great. Sure, and good luck with the new release. Thank you so much. Okay, have a good one. You too. Thanks, Jessica. Bye-bye. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer-in-Residence program. You can meet Jessica at various events throughout the year. Learn more by visiting cincinnatilibrary.org slash writer-in-residence. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And leave us a review. It helps other book lovers find us. Thank you for listening.